Hi, I'm Sophie Marie Odom, Lifestyle Magazine's editor, the Motability Schemes custom magazine which helps readers discover a world of possibilities. And I'm Samantha Rank, broadcaster and disability rights campaigner. Now, you may know me from a very popular chocolate brand. Unfortunately, today's show is not sponsored by said chocolate brand, but we've got plenty of goodness packed in for you. So, without further ado, I feel like, Sophie, we need a bit of a drum roll here. Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode of the Motability Lifestyle Pod. Hooray! <laughs> Fun fair. In this podcast, we invite our friends from the disability community into the studio for a conversation about how we can all live our best life, particularly when we are navigating an often frustrating and complex disabling world. This month, Motability, the charity that helps thousands of disabled people discover independence, is turning 45. Hooray! So to kick things off, we look back at how accessible transport has evolved over the years and what's to come. Because imagine a world where all trains are step-free and inclusive. And I think transport plays such an integral role in many disabled and neurodivergent people's lives. Just the other day, I took a train and I hadn't been on a train for quite some time. And I was pleasantly surprised at how inclusive ultimately was. And we're definitely going to talk a little bit more about that but because I am not a train expert I will leave it up to the expert so our very very special guest today is Dominic Lund Cullen and he is the accessibility and inclusion manager at Rail Delivery Group so we'll be asking him how far we've come in making our public transport accessible and I think the even bigger question is have we got a lot more to do? Hi, Sam. Oh, hello. Fancy seeing you here. I know. It's what like, the chances? It's like we've planned it and we've also coordinated our outfits. We are both in a very, my, my colour of le moment. Um, do, you, do you like my French accent there? <laughs> my favourite uh, colour in green. A little, I think yours is more of an olive and I'm a bit of a sage. It's like we talk before the show and coordinate. But no, this is just chance. I know. We're clearly in tune, aren't we, Sam? We have <laughs> Oh, I think we can do better than that. <laughs> so tell me, well, well, first of all, we're in the studio and there is a lot of pink going on. There is. Which which I'm happy about because I think this month has been Barbie fever. So I've totally embraced pink. You also provided me with some vegan sweets for the show yes. that are bright pink. But also, what is this over my shoulder? What can I see? It is our award. <laughs> and it is very pink. It is pink, isn't it? So we won Cover of the Year Silver Award for our February cover, where we spoke about how dogs are superheroes and they help their owners on a daily basis. And yeah, we were awarded the PPA Cover of the Year Silver Award, which we're so excited about. And I'm so proud of the team. Just to blow my own trumpet a little bit, the judges said that this cover carefully considers its audience, is accessible to its readers and has driven engagement across the brand. And we're just so delighted and I'm so proud of our team. Yes, so we can finally say we're an award-winning magazine. Award-winning, darling? Yes. I think you should wear a T-shirt with that everywhere. Now, congratulations, that is a huge accomplishment. I think it's awards are a weird one because, of course, there's so many people out there that do amazing things. But you know what? Who, who are we kidding? 
We want validation. We want a bright pink award that we can put up on a shelf and, you know, like brag about. I'm all for the, you know, gratification. I need, I need gifts. I need awards. I need accolades. I need it all. And I don't care who judges me for that. But congratulations. Thank and you. To the team. But you're also oh, yes. award winning, aren't oh, you? Oh, yes. Not got my MBE yet, which I'm a little bit bitter about. But yes, I was given a beautiful honour. I went back to Lancaster University. So that's where I did my BA. And they awarded me the Outstanding Alumni Award, which recognises, you know, graduates who ultimately give back to their community. So I I delivered the keynote speech for the graduates of my old college. Um, so it was a lovely day. But what struck me, apart from just the nostalgia that was completely intoxicating, and, you know, obviously having this award and my mum there, it was just beautiful. The sunshine came out, which never happens in Lancaster, believe me, is the gown. They had a wheelchair gown. That's amazing. So they had a gown specifically that was cut out at the back so that it kind of just drapes at the front and you have everything else. So it just didn't, I didn't have to sit on it because for all you, you wheelchair users out there, you know what it's like, particularly in winter. Oh my goodness, winter's a nightmare. The more layers you have on, it's just so inconvenient. So yeah, so that was like a bit mind-blowing. When I posted my picture in my cap and gown, I had so many wheelchair users reach out to me on social media, say, I'm graduating, I'm really worried about the gown, and I said, well, make sure you ask for this. So I just think, you know, every event has such a domino effect, a butterfly effect. And this is why I love being in the public eye for all the woes. I just think me having that award, that recognition was a personal victory. But also having that experience allows me to educate others and share. And and if that makes someone feel more comfortable or encourages someone to go to university, um, I, I'm doing I'm doing my job well done. There we go. MBE, MBE. <laughs> well done, Sam. That's amazing. <laughs> Both of us. We go straight to the top of the class. Although I was never at the top of the class because I was a bit of a chatterbox. But who is laughing? Now, now, those were most definitely reasons to be cheerful, which brings us seamlessly to our first segment. That's right. Each episode, we start by looking at some of the reasons to be cheerful, either something that's in the news that's lifted our spirits or an important event for the community. And on that note, it's July. So it's a big one, isn't it, Sam? It is. July is Disability Pride Month. Why is Disability Pride Month so important? I think it's really, really important that we highlight disability pride month and if I'm completely honest with you I only heard of disability pride I would say six years ago it came up on my Instagram feed I was like what is this also we've got a flag how did I not know about that and I think although it's still very much in its infancy as a landmark celebration but that does not mean that we don't sing about it and shout about it from the rooftops I have been blessed with a whole host of disability authors and books that have come through my letterbox I mean that for me just shows that we are so much more engaged with disabled people and and much more open to investing in our lives and our stories I've read your recent column in the metro entitled it's disability pride month and i'm unapologetically proud to be me where you discuss your disability pride journey which started in 2010 um so i just had a few questions Mm. for you sam because that was a really interesting article i feel like i got to know you a bit more so was this journey before you stepped into stardom 
Absolutely. So I was born with a rare genetic condition, osteogenesis imperfecta, more commonly known as brittle bones. Um, so I've always been a wheelchair user. I'm very much the only disabled person in the family, so to speak. And I, like many of us, I came as a bit of a shock to the world. You know, my sister's non-disabled. And I guess, you know, f- coming from two very young parents, um, they they were trying to do the best that they could. But unfortunately, they were victims of their own unconscious bias about disability. So although I've always had a very innate sense of worth, so I quite liked being unique, quite liked the fact, my dad was an antiques dealer, quite liked the fact that when we went around the car boots or the antique fairs, people would like give me like stuffed teddy bears or lollipops. And I love, I, I, I was like, yes, hence why I'm a bit of a diva now. Because like people just would flock to me because I was cute. And yeah, so I always had this sense of pride, but I didn't necessarily have a sense of pride in my disability because I was never shown that you could. So I liked me and I was okay being in a wheelchair, but I didn't like any other disabled people. And that that is something that I'm not necessarily proud to admit, but it's my reality. Like I was like, okay, so I'm me, but I don't want to hang around with you, you know, and that was my internalized ableism absolutely showing through and it was only by a really chance meeting ironically on a train that's a really good segue there isn't there really (laughs) by a chance meeting on a train I met someone who also had the same condition as me and she you know she taught me that essentially what we talk about now the social model of disability that actually disabled people aren't the problem you know, it's society that disables us. It's a society that makes us feel lesser than. And that was a real flip in my consciousness. And I truly believe that actually my body lets me down a lot. I'm in pain quite a lot. But so long as I have the right support, the right respect, the right provisions, as long as I have the tools to live my life how I choose to live, not at the pace of an abled society how I choose to pace myself and and respect my own body. So long as that's the case, then yes, I will have pride in me. Because why, why wouldn't I have pride in something that is inherently a big part of who I am? So Sam, what advice would you offer to listeners who don't feel so proud right now? It's a sensitive subject and we're all on different journeys. But I hope anyone who's listening today, no matter where you are on your journey, I hope that you can block out the external voices and come to a place of contentment and find joy and perhaps one day find pride in your disability identity. Thank you, Sam. Okay, so it's time for our guest who is Dominic Lund Conlon. Dominic is a mobility expert and is well known in his field for making a huge impact on many people's ability to get around, both through his work with the Rail Delivery Group and as founder of the website Review My Wheelchair. Dominic, a very, very warm welcome to the very first motability lifestyle podcast i feel like we need to do a fanfare every every time we introduce a guest well so welcome thank you so much for joining us now before we get started let's address something let's address the elephant in the room you are unfortunately not here in the studio with us which is sad because you're missing out on some very very nice treats however you aren't here because the tube strikes in london were supposed to be happening and then last minute 
they didn't happen. But let's talk about transport and how sometimes it can be so inconsistent. And particularly when you are a disabled person, particularly like myself, a wheelchair user, you really do need to plan ahead just for that security, that reassurance. What's the, what is going on? Well, I mean, it's a fair question. Um, I mean, um, nobody mentioned treats to me. That would have motivated me. That would have been the clincher, wouldn't it? That would have been the game changer for you. I am motivated by cake. <laughs> um, I mean, it, you're absolutely right. You know, strikes, disruption, it, it messes with people's plans, you know. And I, I think just put aside the, minute, the fact that when you're disabled, your plans become more important to you because you are constantly planning your day from beginning to end to make sure that everything just works. As any any customer, the strikes have really interrupted and, and caused disruption. You know, the, the industry is very sorry about that. We're doing our best to resolve it. Um, the thing that I, I would probably say here is if customers have plans, we want to make sure that customer plans happen as best as we can. If there is disruption, we need to pick up and support the customer to replan their journey accordingly. If there's something additional needed, we sort that out. And even if customers are turn up and go, we still do our best because our commitment there is we, we will get you to your destination if you bought your ticket to the best of our ability. Dominic, in terms of the motability report called the transport accessibility gap which found that in the UK the transport accessibility gap currently stands at 38% which means that disabled people take 38% fewer trips than those without disabilities and it's a figure that hasn't changed for over a decade. Are you able to comment on that and just tell us your thoughts because I know that like you know within your role you're doing a lot to assist that and to to make journeys much more accessible. It it makes me quite sad that you know 38% is massive it's really in the rail industry's gift and to work on that and improve it. And within the plan for rail, which was issued oh, a couple of years ago now, there were one of the aspects was about the necessity of a national rail accessibility strategy to close up as much of that gap as possible. That's being drafted at the moment, is due for consultation, I believe, later this year. And that's going to really be the mechanism of the next five years, as well as beginning the steps of a long-term plan for change. Level boarding, for example, is one of the criticalities in there for many disabled people, not just wheelchair users, for those who may be living with vision loss, blind, those who maybe have mobility issues, actually they're ambulant, they may have luggage with them. That can't happen overnight because we have rolling stock, which is on a 30-year life. We've started some of that journey. We need to get the policy now to change to enable that to become widespread 100%. There's other bits as well though around things like good customer information, end-to-end journey experience, the fact that we need to empower customer journeys. The way we're going to do that I think will be critical because it's got to be about that inclusive approach because as you say that 38% gap is, you know, it's not right. It it needs to be remedied. And I think a lot of A lot of this comes down to, and this is my personal opinion, you know, when we're talking about removing barriers, I think that, you know, a lot of barriers can be removed um, really with ease, with with not a lot of, you know, overhead costing. 
but it's the attitude. So it's the attitude that, you know, disabled people do not have rich lives, that we don't want to make spontaneous trips, that we, you know, we, we kind of stay at home and then now and again pop to the hospital or a local, you know, kind of grocery store and that's that's it. And I think amplifying the voices of our community, I know a lot of networks on transport are including disabled people and having kind of roundtable discussions, which is all really positive and has absolutely contributed to the progression that we've seen. And I know that the passenger assist app, which is um, something that has, you know, allowed for more spontaneous trips so that you can, you know, get an app on your phone and you can simply request your assistance, you know, um, I think up to half an hour before taking a journey, whereas prior to that, it needed to be at least 24 hours before, which, you know, on the surface, all seems incredibly forward thinking and all very, very inclusive. However, I, I sometimes wonder whether these initiatives are actually sending out the wrong message because legally, if you turned up with any um, access requirements um, spontaneously, don't the rail networks have a legal obligation to assist you anyway? So, you know, having these initiatives saying that we need to book assistance prior, is that not putting, again, the onus back onto disabled people? How, how do you feel about that? So I, I disagree disagree with that point of the owners back on disabled people we're very clear in our comments that you can turn up and go you can pre-book it's up to you as a customer you're our customer at the end of the day we want you to be able to just travel and at your point about spontaneous travel yeah absolutely customers travel spontaneously because plans change because they identify I, I, i want to go and do something i you know i want to go to the beach today i want to go and see my friend at and we we offer turn up and go. We've not shied away from that. Some customers want that confirmation in advance of, look, I've reserved my seat. I've I've booked assistance. I've got it here in front of me. That bit of confidence, if you know, if somebody's anxious, for example, they got that anxiety there. It has to be essentially. It, it's not one size fits all. Is what I'm trying to say. If customers turn up, you know, if you turn up at a station today and said, hey, I, I, I need to go from here to there, staff will assist. Your point about hearts and minds is absolutely right. The industry over the past three years has been delivering training to improve that experience for customers. It's been disabled people-led. And that is quite important because the voice of disabled people is allied and comes through that training. And yeah, I'm, we're seeing a lot of hearts and minds change out there. Is it perfect? Probably not yet. Mm-hmm. It, it takes time to change attitudes and cultures. And I know that I, you know, my own experiences, I've had some terrific experiences out there with people. I've also had some really poor experiences where I've fed back of, look, this needs to change because if I'm experiencing it, our customers certainly should not be. Absolutely. And, and and training is is key. And, um, you know, when I first started to come down to London independently, I would be often reminded by a lot of staff members, you know, if you're not here half an hour before then we come, you know, we won't take you or we refuse to take you. And, uh, you know, I don't hear any of these comments anymore. So for my own um you know, sanity, so to speak, for my own reassurance. I think it's great having options. And I think, you know, living in a, in a disabling world, having options is is something that will benefit everybody, no matter what their needs or what their impairment. So 
thank you um thank you for clarifying that i think a lot of people are a little bit unclear about you know provisions that are out there and and if we are actually all on the same page so just Going back to the transport accessibility gap, um, Motability has launched the National Centre for Accessible Transport and it's being run by Coventry University in collaboration with charities, organisations. Um, so I'm not sure if you've heard of the centre, but the centre will be focused on better understanding disabled people's experiences and co-designing solutions. I just want to know your thoughts on this, Dominic. Well, it's fantastic. I mean, we can do all our own research to we're blue in the face as, as a single transport industry, but we're one mode. And actually that multimodal aspect of the partnership is vital because a customer's journey doesn't start. You step out of the door and into a railway station. I know very few people who actually live on a railway platform that next door to them. So that first last mile is critical and it is brilliant because we need solid research about the end-to-end journey that actively influences the, the journey overall for customers, that end-to-end experience for them. I mentioned earlier that National Rail Accessibility Strategy and the, the partnership, the, Nas- uh, the National Centre for Accessible Transport partnership there will be influencing a lot of that work going on. Because as you said, that that gap there that we, we want to bring down, um, that's critical. But the other factor here is the purple pound, you know, that it's what is it? I think it's forty or forty million pounds that oh, transport is missing now. out on. Gone up now. It's gone up, gone up. <laughs> yeah, inflation, and we want our slice of that pie. You know, mm. tra- railway. You know, the railways want customers, and you know, tra- disabled people don't travel for free. They pay a fare. Absolutely, it's important that we respect the value of our customers, and that means you know, if we're taking your money as a customer. We've got to make sure that your experience is equitable, mm-hmm. that we treat you with respect, that we provide the service that you need. Now, here on the uh, Motability Lifestyle Pod, we are all about the good vibes, how to live your best life. So I know we've talked about some heavy, heavy themes here. So I now want to know from you, Dominic, can you share with us all some of your most positive experiences of rail travel i'll tell you mine they often include little tiny bottles of liquid that's what i quite like about traveling when i get upgraded from the pauper cabin to first class and then i have an abundance of these tiny little bottles which i quite like because as a as a little person quite like things that are also little that i can put in my pocket but enough about me dominic share with us all some of your highs from rail travel I like the cans of ginger beer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm snobby. Like I, I like a ginger beer more than a Coca-Cola. Um, I mean, for me, the perfect journey happens every time I go to the office. And that's because Greater Anglia runs level boarding trains from Norwich into London. The best journeys are unremarkable. The fact that I don't have to necessarily interact with anybody unless I choose to. Which, um, you know, at first thing in the morning, you know, 6 a.m., the, the only interaction I want is, please, can I have a cup of coffee? And then I just <laughs> sort of get myself prepared for the day. Um, I mean, I've had some great experiences otherwise. I mean, I've turned up for trains five minutes to go, three minutes to go. And, yep, yeah, let's let's get cracking. And it's that, that positivity, that willingness of, yeah, we're going to make your journey happen. They make the good experiences. They make the great journeys. If you ask me like my best experiences, um, traveling to Dundee with LNER from King's Cross, 
uh, the friendly staff, the fact that it's a long journey uh, and just, yeah, all keep an eye out on the right-hand side for this view as we go. Just seeing some of the UK. I mean, the UK is an incredibly rich country when it comes to the window view. Um, I don't know, Sam, if you've ever been to Cornwall, for example, the trains go along the seawall at Dawlish. And you get, you're literally right next to the sea again in Folkestone to Dover. It's the same. The ride up to Scotland's gorgeous. Uh, I love the terrified. West Coast as well. No, I'd be terrified. I'm not going to lie. I'd be a little bit scared being that close to the water's edge. I haven't been. It, it sounds amazing, though, the view. It, it's amazing. It really is gorgeous. I mean, uh, I've been very lucky in that I've experienced some great railways. Um, and I have to say, yeah... It, we are very, very blessed with some great railway views. I mean, I haven't even touched on sort of Harry Potter um, <laughs> and the ride from Fort William up to Malague, going over the viaduct um, there, which I know is many people would associate uh, with a steam train. So I, I've had some great journey experiences. It's the people always make it. I mean, you know, you said earlier that the staff, that you know, and people out there, they really can make a journey brilliant, and they always do those friendly encounters being told that's where you're going to find the best view have a look at this when you get to your destination as long as they don't talk to you before 6am in the morning <laughs> don't talk to me before 6am in the morning because uh, I, I won't be speaking much back I, I have I have to be honest I have now got my coffee order down to two grunts and a nod <laughs> I can relate to that, Dominic. <laughs> um, so what does the future of accessible transport look like? Or what would you ideally like it to look like? I think my ideal would be certainly things like level boarding across the country, the ability to obtain that support where you need it, seamless, integrated, equitable. What does it look like in that utopian goal Certainly the next five years and that strategy, the National Rail Accessibility Strategy, is going to be critical for some of the enablers to get that going. As I said, some changes are massive and they don't happen overnight. But there's other bits as well, like good customer information. There's a couple of programs underway at the minute. One of them is called Smarter Information, Smarter Journeys. And things like knowing that your lift is functioning at a station We've got a pilot underway at the minute where if a lift has been fitted with a piece of equipment, they're calling an EMU, an electronic monitoring unit. Uh, I just like the fact it just relates to a, <laughs> a, a bird that certainly I've seen on uh, on uh, Instagram. I can have an attitude. Um, or is it an ostrich? I digress. Anyway, mm -hmm. so if it is fitted with, the, with uh, the latest EMUs, it tells Network Rail if that lift is operational or not. If it stops working, it sends an alert. They get an engineer out there quicker. But we can also take that feed, and we have, and there's a system called Access Map, uh, which is one of the tools we offer, which is an at-a-glance, see if your station is accessible or not. We've actually put, we've been able to put that information in there. We're creating a web page to go parallel, so you can just search a station. You've got the information there. That is rolling out at the moment, so customers can see if a lift is working or not working at their local station before they travel it doesn't take away from if the lift is not working we still need to make sure we do what we need to do to make a journey happen because it's on it's on the rail industry if something is broken to fix it mm -hmm. or find another alternative it's a really massive piece of uh, of work the last bit um and again it's information is 
within the rail uh, plan for rail, there was an audit being undertaken. It was said we needed to audit and look at all the accessibility of stations and put a, a good, clear source of truth out there. That information ha uh, has all been gathered. The audit has been completed. And now we're in the process of integrating that into the overall asset management, but also making that information available to customers in a meaningful way according to their requirements. So, for example, if somebody is uh, living with vision loss, if they're blind, telling a customer that there are tactile surfaces at a station or not is critical. Mm -hmm. It's really important. Uh, likewise, just knowing as a wheelchair user, for example, just knowing that there are steps into a particular entrance of a station and to use the main entrance, for example, rather than the side, that is critical for me. The other thing, though, in there is things like uh, BSL information. Mm -hmm. We've began a process of rolling out BSL signs at network rail stations. I know TransPennine have rolled this out at several stations as well. And just being clear to customers where they exist and, and building that out. That all sounds, you know, incredible because as we know, you know, disabled people have different experiences. We have different needs. We are not a monolith. You know, we make up such a huge proportion of the UK population. But what we need at any given time may differ. And that may differ from day to day, um, given, you know, whether we've got a PA with us, whether our health is failing us. And, you know, you touched upon it earlier about the, the importance of equality but also understanding equity and it, it sounds like you you have understood your mission that you know we might not always get to a point where we have this universal goal of inclusion but you've definitely taken a targeted approach I'm sure that is music to to many of our listeners ears now I know we've not got too much long with you it's been a fascinating conversation and we could have talked for a very long time I'm sure we'll be getting you back um very soon but as it is July and it's disability pride month I would love to know from you what does pride mean to you what does disability pride mean to you and how do you celebrate so disability pride to me is that celebration of our demographic um it's very personal i mean i like to use it as a time to just reflect on what's important to me what makes me me and i you know my pride as a disabled person i think disability pride is massively underrecognized we don't celebrate it as much in the rail industry as we could and that's partly because we need to find the right ways to celebrate it it can't be lip service if you take part in pride if we're going to celebrate it it needs to be sustainable it needs to be continuous and keep delivering that and i think that's the one thing for me is that if i'm going to celebrate pride in a in a very public arena it can't just be that lip service approach of when day in, day out, you know, customers, well, I think it's what 8% of customers of the OR said at the minute are experiencing passenger assistance failures. We, we shouldn't necessarily go out and say, look how wonderful we are. We need to fix the problem first before we come along and say, right, we are now in a place where we can celebrate pride, you know, with disabled people. I, I think the other thing as well here is that the Disability Pride Month show some of that inequity in our society overall, put aside the railways for a moment. Disability pride is a very muted affair when you consider it to other celebrations. That you, you pointed out there, Sam, that disabled people make up a considerable part of our population. Part of that for me is very much 
enabling people to feel safe and say, actually, yeah, I do have a disability. I can associate or ally with disabled people here because that's certainly one of the challenges that we need to overcome in, in this country is about giving people that, that confidence of if you say you are disabled, it doesn't make you any less of a person. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dominic. So much to, to think about. It has been an absolute pleasure. Bring back trolleys on trains. Bring back trolleys on trains. I want my Kit Kat. Okay, Dominic, thank you so much. And wait for it because we will be back with Car Chat. Sophie. Yes. Guess what? What? I think this is going to be my favourite part of the show. It's Car Chat with Matt. Car Chat with Matt. <laughs> I think I'm just like copywriting some other song, so I'll just maybe have to edit that bit out. Car Chat with Matt. I really enjoyed that. I hope that oh, follows me around wherever I go. <laughs> I really hope so too. <laughs> I love the jingle. I don't want to introduce you anymore. It's Matt Lismore. <laughs> Hi, Hi, Matt. Guys. How are we both? Good, how are you? Good, good, thank you. Excited to be here. Very excited to talk about cars. Yes, cars! And hopefully hopefully entertaining car stuff as well. Because I am not yet a driver, but the closest I've come is my power wheelchair. So I use both um, a manual and a power chair, but my power chair is relatively new to me. So I now need to like, you know, be conscious of crossing the road and actually look left and right and use the indicator. So I feel like I am getting to the the car level. It's a good bit of practice. I've not hit anyone yet. (laughs) Okay, come close. Had one woman go, you need to get an alarm on that one. I do have one. I just don't use it. You need to You need to watch where you're going, don't you? There you go. So you can tell what kind of driver I'm going to be. Passive aggressive. That's what I'm going to be. Anyway, I digress. So given that this episode is looking back at 45 years of mobility, um, I came across a story that looks to the future and looks to flying cars because yes. apparently, Lovely. Matt, in the US, they are testing a flying car that's been approved for road testing as well. And it could be available as early as 2025. What? What? Hang on, we don't even have like selfless, selfless? Self-driving. Self- It'd be I- nice if we had selfless cars yeah, that pay for their own petrol. <laughs> <and that car>. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've gone from not having that yet on our roads to flying cars. Explain. Cars. Elaborate Explain. for Explain. Uh, so, yes. Uh, so this company, they've, they've got a, a working prototype, which in theory does work, uh, and it's been signed off. So, yeah, the licence they've got is effectively for testing and research and development and sort of promotional stuff, really. So it's not... And this is in the US as well, which is obviously very different to the UK. The same kind of people that also did the submarine thing. Are we talking about that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing? Hopefully it's not... not to... <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm hoping I'm it's saying. not quite that. I'm, I'm hoping there's a bit more research involved than well, that. Who knows? Well, it it's similarly expensive. Uh, yeah, so I guess realistically, if we're talking about how real this is going to be for us, <laughs> are we going to be getting into flying cars in a couple of years? Probably not, no. realistically, if we're honest. Um for one thing, I just can't imagine how it would actually work. So so the reason this is they think this is viable is because it's what they call VTOL, so vertical takeoff and landing. So what that means is it doesn't need a run-up to take off. So you'd get in your car, start it up, and you could just sort of ascend vertically and be off on your way. Like hovering. Yeah. Yeah, just, just got shoes like away. that already, no? Hover that'd shoes. be nice, wouldn't it? But <laughs> they do. They have shoes like that already. Do they? I'm not making this up. Google it. <laughs> like Back to the Future. Yeah, like. <laughs> you already have them. I saw it on the Kardashians, so it must be true. It exists. There you go. So yeah, I mean, so this thing, this thing works. They've got a working prototype. Um, it's 
at the moment it's very expensive. I think it was about three hundred thousand pounds ish, or three hundred thousand dollars. It would have been, I guess. Um, and yeah, and and there's certain limitations. Like I think it can it can only drive up to twenty five miles an hour when it's on the road. But in theory. If you needed to go far, you'd be flying it. I just can't imagine. Could you imagine central London if there were <laughs> cars oh, flying? And dro- I, I just can't see yeah. how it could possibly work Bad enough work for the here. bikes, not stopping at crossing. <laughs> yeah, that so, would I mean, I guess that would be one of the advantages yeah. would be if there were more flying cars, yeah. then you could turn some of the sort of city streets to make them more accessible well, for people and, and bikes and wheelchairs. But yeah, I mean, you raised an exceptional point, Sam, is that we haven't even quite got the driverless cars going yet. So having flying cars that are also potentially sort of self-driving seems quite oh, seems like a long way away um but that does steer us nicely onto driverless cars mm. which is something that is a little bit certainly closer i believe than flying cars in that the technology is not miles away um there's just little pieces missing so the legislation is one of the things actually the laws of how it works who's at fault if a car crashes and you're not driving it i mean i'm not going to lie i was carried around on a pillow as a child, mostly because I would fracture my bones very, very easily. However, it's just, you know, made me into a really bougie, obnoxious <laughs> human being. So although I really am going to learn to drive, I would just love to become filthy rich so that I could buy a car that drives on its own. So how realistically, how long is that going to take then? So- and, and, and who do I need to marry to be able to get <laughs> that money? That's a very good question. Uh, I can't help you on the marriage one. Um, but in terms of how far away is it, it's kind of it's both a complicated and an easy question to answer. So uh, I'll explain. There's what we call, there's levels of autonomy, basically. There's five levels or six if you count zero. Zero is no autonomy. And we're at the moment, we're around level two and 2.5, which is effectively, the car can kind of drive itself in certain situations, but you still have to be watching the road. So you still have to be ready to take control at any time. too much moment. work for me, that. Right, yeah, so it's not, it's almost there, but it's not quite there. What we're talking about when we think of completely driverless cars, like the future is this level five, which is where you get in the car and at no point are you going to be expected to actually control it. You Power get in. Up. Absolutely. You'd be snoozing in the back or whatever, having a, a drink. Or whatever. Or... <laughs> nah, this is a family show. Or whatever. <laughs> I'm not here to judge. Uh, <laughs> people do what they like. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> um, so for me, apart from the bouginess aside, being a disabled woman, I know that there's a lot of technology out there and motability are incredibly advanced in all this that will allow someone who's petite stature, um, wheelchair user to drive very safely and have full independence. However, you know, I don't know if I'm going to break my arm and I want to know that, you know, if I do break an arm, then I want to still be able to get get to where I need to go. So from a disability standpoint, what are the advantages of of these types of of cars. Yeah, so there's obviously potentially huge benefits for the disabled community because if you think, obviously, I've said that sort of level five long term in the future, completely driverless cars, that would be fantastic because in theory, then you don't need a steering wheel and all the other bits that you associate with the inside of a car. The, a car could effectively just look like a small room inside. So then suddenly it's much easier to do things like get a wheelchair in and out. Um, and, you know, you could just be you know, people with blindness, for example, would be able to get in and allow them a whole new level of independence where they wouldn't necessarily need a carer to get them somewhere, that kind of thing. Um, so, it, you know, it, it potentially offers a, a huge amount of freedom and independence to to people who at the moment have access to the Motability Scheme, which is great. Um, and 
hopefully some of these autonomous features will eventually end up on the cars on the scheme. So today, there are actually a few cars that do have some autonomous features, obviously not quite to that level. You can't just sit in there and take a nap and arrive at your destination. Uh, but for example, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which is an electric car, uh, that is actually the first car in the UK where you're legally allowed to take your hands off the wheel on the motorway. So it's got a system called Blue Cruise. Once you're on the motorway, and it is only for motorways, the car checks that you're actually watching the road. So you do have to watch the road. If you don't, it tells you off and you have to carry on driving yourself. But so long as you're watching the road, you can take your hands off the wheel, which, all right, it's not, it's not quite the same as being able to read a book or watch a YouTube video or something, but it's a bit easier than having to actually, you know, be 100% yeah. full concentration the whole time. shoulders a little yeah. bit of a rest. But that will, that's all great. But what about knickknacks? What about gadgets for the car? Yes, you found I've something, something that can make our journeys <laughs> much have, more interesting. don't you worry. We're going to try and have some exciting gadgets some weeks and others that I think are just going to be very helpful. So this one, it sounds dull on the face of it, is uh, it's basically a wireless adapter for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Now, if you don't know what that is, Sam, Sorry, you might I not. Sleep, because... <laughs> Sam. Sorry about that. Oh, it's really dull sounding, isn't it? So, Sam, you're you're yet to start your driving adventure fully, right? Um, but you might get to know Android Auto and Apple CarPlay once you start. It's very useful. It basically uses your smartphone on the car screen, effectively. So all the apps that you love, like Spotify or Apple Music or whatever it is you use, you can then access through your car screen. So you can just play all your Spotify playlists. You you're playing a song in the kitchen you get in your car, it carries on playing. So you've got access to all your music and whatnot. I can set it up before I'm even in the car and I get in and it's on the could screen. Could be dangerous. Your missus could be looking through your history. <laughs> What's Amy up to? The reason, the reason this gadget is useful is because previously you had to connect it, your phone with a cable. A, it's just not possible for everyone. And B, if you're like me, you're just always gonna forget the cable. Thank you, Matt, that was riveting. I cannot wait to, to hear more about gadgets and automobile. So until next time. See you soon, guys. Thanks, Matt. So that's it for this episode of the Motability Lifestyle Pod. It's been fun. Thanks to our guests, Dominic Lund-Conlon at Matt Lismore. Thanks to our producer, Yelaine Goffin at Rethink Audio and our editorial assistant, Lucy Rhodes at Wonderly. If you like this episode, follow us, tell all your friends and please leave a review. If you want to tell us what you thought or if there's something you'd like to hear, come say hello on Instagram. For some behind the scenes content, follow us on TikTok and watch the full video on YouTube. You can find us on motability underscore lifestyle underscore mag. Finally, if you want more information about motability schemes, go to motability.co.uk. Or if you want to learn more about motability, the charity, visit motability.org.uk. And that's it. I am Samantha Rank. And I'm Sophie Marie Odom. See you in two weeks.